you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. like to read beginning in verse 12 and then after I read we'll pray. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. And spent the night there. Let's read verse 23 to 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come unto you, giving you praise and honor and glory in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, asking for your Spirit to work according to your will in our lives. The preacher is in need of your Spirit to give purpose and power unto the words that are spoken that it would be your truth given to your people alone, that you would be glorified and not the preacher. The people are in need of the word of God to be illumined to their minds, their souls. By the power of your spirit, we ask, Lord, that you would do this for your purpose, your will, and your glory alone. Holy Spirit, move among us according to your will according to the will of God the Son and God the Father. All honor and glory be given unto you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. An unknown and obscure Augustinian monk unintentionally lit Europe ablaze on August 31st, 
1517. Martin Luther was struggling with the state of common biblical understanding in Germany and the teaching of the Roman church. He recognized All Saints Day would be celebrated soon on November the 1st. As one writer noted, on November the 1st, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds if not thousands of years off time in purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. So Luther recognized that the relics would serve to bolster the false ideas of the Roman church. Here these people would be coming in just a few days on November the 1st to see these relics, these things that the church had decided were holy things. And if you could see them, you could look upon them. You could even pray toward them. You could even give money toward those things. And they would help you get yourself or some loved one out of years in purgatory. Luther knew purgatory was a false doctrine. There's no such thing. The Bible does not teach any doctrine of such purgatory. He saw that day coming and realized This was going to be happening in his town, the place where he was uh, a shepherd of the people in this town of Wittenberg. He was so vexed, so concerned, so distraught, he began to write out all of the issues that were concerning the false doctrines and teachings of the Roman church. These later would be termed the 95 Theses. He would take these statements that he had put to paper and he would nail them to the door of the Wittenberg church. Now in his day, that was meant for discussion, consideration. It was meant for people to come and read that. It was like something being posted on the internet that someone would go and read. It was meant for people to really take it in and think about it, that the town and the community would consider it rightly. Those 95 statements not only lit Wittenberg ablaze, but in the years to come, lit the whole of Europe ablaze. I would encourage you to read Roland Bainton's biography of Martin Luther. It gives you a perspective, a background of what was happening not only in Germany but in Europe. And then it gives you a perspective of what Martin Luther meant to that day and time. What Martin Luther wrote in concern for discussion and reconsideration for even the church to reform and say, reform your practices to the scripture. Reform your doctrine to the scripture was not taken as the purpose of reform. Ultimately, these points were considered as statements against the doctrine and perspective of the Roman church and the Pope. And the Pope and his leadership took it personally. They sought Martin Luther out. They wanted him to be killed. 
They sought ways to get rid of him. All because, not because he had started a physical war, not because he picked up a sword and started lopping people's ears off, all because he wrote statements that pointed out their doctrine was false. In the passages before us, we find the Lord Jesus, long before the time of Martin Luther, was in a similar situation. By this point, he had been teaching several years. His disciples were uh, called out men. They had followed the Lord Jesus all over uh, areas surrounding Israel. His disciples were often burdened by the skewed, erroneous, and heretical teachings of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. His disciples were accused by those religious leaders of breaking God's law or his laws for Israel. They were even accused of breaking the Sabbath, going against one of the Ten Commandments. This was much the same as the day in Germany where the Roman church had taken all kinds of ideas and put them onto the people that were not biblical. You must do this or you will not please God. And yet scripture didn't teach that. You must do this or you will be condemned. Yet the scripture didn't teach that. Such was the same in the day of Christ. The rabbis and the teachers, the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they had made up all kinds of extenuations of the law and they had even misinterpreted the law and twisted it in such a way to put the people in bondage. So when the time came that the Lord Jesus was ushered in in His triumphal entry, He came to set the record straight and show that the practices of those religious leaders were out of step with God's word. But not only did he come with people praising him on the road, he comes to enter the temple. He not only came as king, he came as priest. Now, Martin Luther could not have been Jesus in any way. He was just trying to point people to the Christ of the Bible. Martin Luther was not proclaiming he was a king. He was pointing people to the one true king. Martin Luther was not saying he could be people's priest, for he taught that we would become a holy priesthood, but only because of the work of the one high priest. And here we see how that came about in time. That before we ever get to the Olivet Discourse, there's a recognition of first, Jesus as king, and secondly, Jesus as priest. In chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple. Now, this was on a Sunday, the first day of the week. This would be the start of the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus, as some have called it. This is that week of Christ leading up to the time of his death that he had been ushered in in his triumphal entry and praised. 
He had been recognized as a prophet in verse 11. And in that same time frame, on that first day, it says, And Jesus entered the temple. Now this is no small thing for the Jews to have entered the temple. To come into the temple was to come into a place of pure reverence. Um, You and I don't often think of a building as uh, this place of reverence. Um, We have a a new covenant context in our minds that we talk about the church as the people, which is true enough. And it's very important for us to see that in its context. But you and I need to see that the temple in and of itself in its day was the place of the sacrificial system. It was the place of the holy of holies. It had been the recognized place of the very presence of God with the people of Israel. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they had longed for temple worship because God had prescribed it to them. Even when the temple was destroyed, they wanted to have it back. And they longed to go back from Babylon to go and rebuild the temple and the walls around the city. And over the centuries, the temple had been a beautiful building built that stood in magnificence. And here Jesus comes and he enters that temple. And it's interesting. At this time, it's not as though he hadn't entered before. It's not as as though he had not been there before. He had not been near it or around it. But this time he came with specific purpose. Number one, Jesus protected his people in his house. Jesus protected his people in his house. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Look at verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, please get the picture here. This temple's been standing for centuries. Long before this person named Jesus assumed human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, even came to this earth. These religious leaders, these hearers, those in the hearing of what was said, those money changers, they hear this man As he's coming, and this is one of those parts where you have to recognize this was uh, Jesus being uh, as, as cunning as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. There was a gentleness to his sheep, but he's coming in with righteous anger as only he could have. And he is driving out these money changers. He's tossing their tables over and he's saying, you get out. This is my house. Boy, to those people hearing that, they're going, what? Who are you to tell us this is your house? 
This is the house of God. He's saying to them in this moment, I am God. I am the very Son of God, and I have come to protect my people, and you will no longer lead them astray. So under number one, he wrangled the relic pushers of his day. He wrangled the relic pushers of his day. He just got them all together, threw all their stuff over, and he drove them out. Jesus could be the mild one who would deal with children and he could look at not just any person but a person who was willingly doing it his way for his purpose and his gain. He could take that person and he could drive them out of the temple and say, this is my house. That means when he takes ownership of that house, that he is the priest of that house. When he takes ownership of that house, he's saying, you will do what I say in this house. It is mine. As soon as he drives them out, he's saying to them pointedly, your purposes, your ways, and your ways of worship are unbiblical. Because all of those things that he's throwing out are those things which they were selling to go toward the worship of God and to go toward the sacrificial system. And he's saying, you're doing it wrongly. You're making even worship of me a money gainer for yourselves. You're weakening the very good news that God saves and that God atones for the sins of His people. How weak and small is it? We come to a meeting place like this and act as if the time of worship is about us. Does it have some benefits for us? Amen. But these money changers, these vile sellers of these animals were actually making God's atonement about them. And Jesus says no. He says no. So he wrangled them up and he drove them out. But notice secondly under number one in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He welcomed the distraught sheep of his day. He welcomed the distraught sheep of his day. He didn't just drive people out. And show his righteous anger. He then turned to these distraught people there. These these sheep of his. And he healed them. He welcomed them. And said this is what my house is about. 
My house is about taking the distraught and giving them peace. It shows once again the importance of trusting in who the Lord Jesus is. That there were those who were lame who would come to him and blind who would come to him knowing that he not only would, but he could heal them. When you come to worship the Lord Jesus, are you coming asking that the Lord Jesus would actually heal you of your sin, forgive you of your sin? Are you believing that the Lord Jesus has a purpose for everything in your life? These weak who had come to him were saying, we have no other hope. We have nowhere else to go. Jesus protected his people in his house. Number two, Jesus prescribed his worship in his house. Jesus prescribed his worship in his house. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, well, these chief priests became indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, speaking of the word of God, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself? Here it is from the psalm, the idea that God's son has been preparing praise for himself. And he's saying, I am the very son of God. I am the high priest. This praise has been prepared a long time ago from eternity past for me. And I was a part of preparing it for myself. I am capable of doing this. So he embraced the shouts of praise. But not only did he embrace the shouts of praise, he declared he is worthy of praise. In declaring that he's worthy of praise, he accepted the title, the son of David. Here he is, he's saying, I'm the covenant king, I'm the promised one. When you read in the Psalms of the promised one, I am that one, I am here. He took that title for himself. You have to realize that for him to do such a thing, a lot of these people thought he was a lunatic. Who in their right mind would take on this title for themselves? Who would accept that title and that praise as being the son of David? But he's saying, I am the promised king of the covenant. And through me, the covenant will be fulfilled. As he's accepting the praise of these who are singing, that means he approved the title by promise and prophecy. He's saying right then and there, what has been prophesied of old, whether it's through the Psalms or whether it's through Isaiah or Jeremiah, 
What has been prophesied in Zechariah, that is being said of me. And I am assuming the right to say that that prophecy is of me. Well, this was about all that these religious leaders could handle. So verse 17 says, And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Notice the Lord Jesus doesn't sit down with these religious leaders and try to calm their fears, their concerns. We don't have a text here that says he went and sat with them and patted them on the back or he went and told them how it was okay that one day they would understand it. No, he left them right in the midst of their unbelief. Now we'll see a little bit more why of that in just a moment. But after he leaves them on the next day, Monday, Jesus returns to the temple once again. He was teaching in the temple. This had, had been going from verse 18. He's, uh, he's speaking of the barren fig tree. And then in verse 23, he's, he's going to be questioned. And so we see, number three this morning, Jesus presented his truth in his house. Jesus presented his truth in his house. Now, after the word his uh, before truth, if you want to put in parentheses the word the truth, that's fine with me because I'm not trying to say Jesus had his truth and Jesus was woke. Um, that would be the modern culture way of looking at it. Um, and you all know that's not true and I'm not saying that. Jesus presented his truth in his house means that Jesus presented the truth in his house. There's only one truth, and Jesus presents that truth. How does he present this truth that is his truth and it is the truth? Well, we see him teaching, and then he's questioned. He says, when he entered the temple, verse 23, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, think about the doing these things. That's pointing back to previous things, especially the fact that he's been ushered in at the triumphal entry. He's come in and he's driven out these relic pushers uh, in, in the temple. <coughs> and he's driven them out. He's accepted the praise of these children. All right, He's been teaching of the barren fig tree. And they're saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Are you healing? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? In verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. So we see first and foremost, he questioned the questioners. See, this is the problem we often have in today's cultural debates and difficulties. Those who are making statements don't like to be questioned. And every time you question them, they say, by what authority are you doing this? Who are you to question me? I have my truth. You have your truth. But don't question my truth because you don't have that authority. Jesus, Jesus shows that anytime we are working based upon the word of God, we have the right, according to the word of God, to question anything that comes about from the culture and comes about from the lives of sinners. There is no one that can tell us we cannot question their truth. 
They don't have that right. As long as we are standing on God's word. So Jesus presents that by question. He questioned the questioners. He turns to them. He says, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Well, that, that put these religious leaders in a little bit of a quandary. You see, we have to recognize that what Jesus is doing when he's questioning them is he's telling them their authority was limited. So he told these religious leaders, your authority is limited. How is it? Well... Look at what happens. As he tells them their authority is limited, they show that that's the truth. They begin to question themselves. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He questions them. They begin to even question themselves. If we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? John had come and he had preached the baptism of repentance and baptism, he'd come and preach, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, why didn't you believe him? And they recognize this is what they're being asked. But if we say that the authority that John had was from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. Well, first of all, he told them their authority was limited because they feared the people and lived for themselves. Now, think about it. They were so afraid to answer one way or the other that they chose the answer in their minds, not out of their mouth, but in their minds, they chose the answer that they feared the people. If Jesus is the Son of God, then you would have answered accordingly, and you would have bowed the knee to him in that moment and said, you know what? It's from heaven and we need to repent. But that's not what they did. They tried to choose a third way, which was to say, well, we don't know. But the reason they wanted to say we don't know is because they actually feared the people. This meant that ultimately what was more important to them was to live for themselves, their purpose, their glory, their own honoring of themselves. They wanted to keep their status before the people by not answering the question. So they feared the people and lived for themselves. Jesus feared no man and lived for the Father. Because Jesus says, you know what? You guys are weak. You gave a weak answer. You fear men and you're not willing to deal with the truth before you and you gave me this weak answer. So neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I don't have to answer to you. I don't fear you. I don't fear whatever it is you think you can do to me. And whatever it is you can do to me will only be by the will of the Father. So he feared no man and he lived for the Father. Not only did he told them their authority was limited, but he taught them by parable their sin against the Father. 
Now, this is a time where he doesn't leave them to themselves. He now begins to teach to these religious leaders and these questioners. And by parable, he does this. First of all, he teaches them their sin of self-righteousness against the Father. Their sin of self-righteousness against the Father. He uses this parable of the two sons to teach of their own self-righteousness. He says, you guys need to understand. You were given this word early on. You've had truth that you could have spoken it rightly. But he said, you know what? You're like this son who went out and did what he wanted to instead of following the will and the word of the Father. You're not like the one who came back and regretted what he had done because you haven't regretted it. You've gone on in it. So just as John came and preached and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed and repented and they'll be in the kingdom of heaven, you won't be in the kingdom of heaven because you've not regretted what you've done and you've stayed in it. Even though you knew the truth, You had it in the context of what you were brought up in, but you did not want to hear it and you twisted it and you wanted to do what you wanted to do. You're self-righteous. You're self-righteous. You think in and of yourself you can do what you want to do and you will work your own righteousness out. I'm here to tell you your works are like filthy rags. You cannot do anything to save yourself and you have not repented before the king of heaven and earth. He taught them their sin against the Father, their sin of self-righteousness. But he also taught them their sin of rejection. In the parable of the landowner, this parable is about the context of rejecting this truth and rejecting the very stone, the cornerstone that came about from the Lord. He gives this whole parable of the landowner who sent out his servants to those who had leased the land. They didn't want to answer to the landowner, so they beat the slaves up, the servants. Finally, the landowner sends the son. They don't just beat him up, they kill him. He says to him, what do you think this landowner is going to do when he finds out they've killed his son? Verse 41, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent out the vineyard to another vine grower who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Why? Because you rejected the stone, the cornerstone. You did it. He is setting up his coming day when he will die the death of a sinner on behalf of sinners. That he will go and he will complete the work. 
He's setting that up before their eyes and telling them, you have rejected me. This whole time I've been preaching and teaching, you rejected John and you rejected me and you're going to kill me. And you're going to think it's for your purpose, but it's for God's purpose. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. They knew it. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people once again because they considered him to be a prophet. Their sin of complete rejection continues in the parable of the marriage feast. This time the Lord Jesus gives a picture of a marriage feast, a wedding feast for a son. He sends out the slaves to call the people to come, and nobody's coming. They're not coming. It's as though the scales are upon their eyes. They don't see the need to come to this marriage feast. Verse 5, they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his businesses, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. It even got so bad they rejected this wedding feast invitation. Slaves were mistreated and killed. In verse 7, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then they went into the highways and byways everywhere, not just to those around, not just to those of the Jews, but now this message of the calling of the wedding feast would go out to the highways and the byways, to the Gentiles, and they would come. And they were coming in, and the king came to look at the dinner guest, and he was looking over them. He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. See, the father always sees his people clothed in the righteousness of his son. This one was not clothed right, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. He's coming to this, these religious leaders and he's coming to them with the eternal perspective of God's decree and to say to them, the reason you have acted this way, the reason you have rejected is because you are not of my house. Now, you guys have to get this in perspective. Here's this relatively obscure Jewish man born of, of the, the town of Nazareth. who's coming in to the religious leaders of the day. And he is among them saying, you've rejected the cornerstone that the prophets told us about, and I am he. This is my house. I'm driving you out. You get out now. And you will go and seize to kill me, but all it will do is prove your rejection of the very Son of God.
when we get to the Olivet Discourse, we have to be reminded that this teaching, this prophesying, this directing, that the work of Christ had led up to this moment that we get to in Matthew 24. It's not just a standalone sermon that the Lord Jesus preaches out of nowhere. He's already revealed and been revealed as the king and as the priest. He brought an actual reformation to the whole of the world through his preaching, his teaching, and his death and resurrection that has impacted the world ever since. The knowledge of who God is has gone out through all of his cre creation and yet the perspective of who he is has only grown over time by way of covenant. And the greatest fulfillment of the knowledge of God given to mankind has been through the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ. That here we are in 2023 and we're still speaking all over this world about this man named Jesus. Martin Luther was seeking a reform back to the truth of God's word to take the people of his day out of the bondage of the terrible, awful doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. You need to remember there are hundreds of thousands of churches meeting all over this United States today and have met in all different places in the world. And those churches which are teaching anywhere remotely the things of Jesus Christ are doing so firstly because of who Christ is and what he did and what he accomplished and secondly, because God has had a purpose that his word would go out to the whole of this earth and he would not lose one of his people. And even when it was the darkest of times, that some obscure Augustinian monk could be used by God himself to bring truth back to light in the midst of a church that was suppressing that truth. I say to you today, we have a similar problem. On a broad scale, we have gathered groups all over the world and all over this nation who have either A, forgotten what the truth is, or B, they are rejecting it. Not only do we have cults of all sorts, we have terrible teaching in evangelical churches all across the land. And I was reminded last Sunday afternoon 
that that is not just happening here in America. As I was told of things that are going on in other countries, even Africa, where people are told to do ridiculous, ridiculously unbiblical things, to be able to bring themselves before God, they would allow some person dressed in a robe to walk around and whip, literally whip and beat them in the name of God. That's not biblical. That's not true biblical repentance. We are in need of a reformation in the church today. Not only in our land, but across the globe. And we are in need of a reformation that begins with the high priest himself. I'll leave you with these three thoughts. Number one, remember we need a high priest who will protect us. We need a high priest who will protect us. Protect us from ourselves and our sin. If you and I become so self-righteous that we're always concerned about somebody else's sin and we're not dealing with our sin, we've got a problem. We need a high priest to protect us from ourselves and our sin. When we come to the Lord's table today, bring it before Him. Confess your sin. Do you believe He will forgive you? Do you believe by the power of the Holy Spirit He's giving you the ability to fight against your sin, to hate it, and to go against it and strive against it? The very work of that high priest, that has been given to us. We need Him to protect us from the devil. The devil's a real being. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. But he's a real being. And he has in his own desire the will and the desire to thwart God's purpose and plan that he would gain glory for himself. Thankfully, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is bound. And yet he still has his ideas We need to be protected from those who walk according to the lies of the flesh and the lies of the devil. If you don't think you're in need of a high priest every day in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've forgotten the gospel. If you think somehow you've got the ability and somehow you in and of yourself are going to change the world because you can do it, you've missed the whole of the gospel. You need a high priest to protect you. I need a high priest to protect me. Secondly, remember we need to worship according to the high priest's commands. Remember we need to worship according to the high priest's commands. His house is a house of prayer. We need to pray unto him. Are we praying regularly? Praying for reformation? Are you praying that God would bring down these Awful doctrines across these churches? Are you asking? Are you praying and saying, Lord, send the Spirit of God to work? Send men to the field, this field in our land. According to the Scripture, the harvest is there. 
we praying unto him and dealing with our sin? Are we praying unto him and giving him praise? Are you thanking him for what he has done? Every one of us in the room has some kind of trouble in life, don't we? How many of your lives are perfect? Raise your hands. Thankfully, nobody raised their hand. All right, good. So we got that starting point, right? So if that's the case, are you praying and asking the Lord that you would trust in him for whatever's happening in your life that hour, that minute, that day, that week, that month? Are you trusting in yourself? I'm going to push through. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get it done. Well, you may get it done, but if you're not trusting in him, there's no telling what you're going to mess up along the way. Are you trusting that Lord Jesus has a purpose for that next trial, that next tribulation? It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we just let back, let go, and let God. It means prayer is an active command that we've been given, and if we don't do it, we're in sin. If we're not a praying people, we're a sinning people. If my answer to everything is fight with everybody around me, then I've forgotten prayer. The Lord Jesus is trying to tell these men, you become self-righteous because you're not looking rightly at what I've commanded you to do. So we are to pray unto him rightly in worship. We are to praise him according to Scripture. He's commanded us to praise him according to Scripture. This is how he brings it up to these religious leaders. He says, I'm going to accept this praise because this praise is according to Scripture. I fulfilled it. We don't need to be adding things to the worship of God. God doesn't need our help to worship him. God, if you'll let us do it our way, we'll make it a little more uh, lively and we'll do this. And matter of fact, Lord, if you just wait, I've got this cool laser light show. And when I get it together, you're going to see God. I mean, I'm telling you, this is going to be better than Stone Mountain. Just watch, Lord. No, no, he, he wants his word used properly to praise him. To speak his truth, to pray unto him. Even in a small congregation like ours, at a time when we're singing a cappella, we've never done that regularly for the whole of our time and our existence. But the Lord has put us in that place. Have we committed some evil? We're lifting our voices to him. It's what he's commanded us to do, to lift our voices and sing psalms and hymns unto him. Lift your voices in praise. Think of these words that are based upon scripture, that you would praise him according to his scripture. Thirdly and lastly, Remember, we need to stop questioning the high priest of the living God. Remember, we need to stop questioning the high priest of the living God. Much of the problem in the church today is that we've become practical atheists. 
We've gotten to the point that we think we need to help God out with making his name known. We left that which is specifically given in scripture to go to a whole lot of other things to make the gospel palatable. I was shared a video yesterday just just about made me puke. I mean literally about made me puke. There was a Christian songwriter in the late 90s that I had a great appreciation for. Wrote some great lyrics, scriptural lyrics about God, his word, even about things of the doctrines of grace. I'd been told some years ago he had started to kind of go away from scriptural truth in his songs. And yesterday I was sent a video of one of his latest songs where he's praising the idea of boys becoming girls. And says if we want to have the true love of Jesus, then it's okay for boys to become girls. And we need to be accepting of it. And in the video, he's being painted, face painted up, so that by the end of the video, he looks like a cross-dresser. He's forgotten what the gospel is. The gospel doesn't condone sin. The gospel tells us of our sin and says, repent of it and turn to Christ. He's trying to tell people that Jesus will accept them for who they are when the Bible tells us that the Jesus of Scripture says repent and believe. Repent of your sin. And your sin of trying to be different than God made you is a sin. we got a church problem because people are no longer teaching the real truths of Scripture in these churches. All to gather a large crowd. They're telling people there's no more sin. Your sin of homosexuality is not a problem. Come be a member of the local church and do whatever you want. No. Can a homosexual be a member of a local church? Yeah, if they're fighting against that sin and saying it's sin. And saying, I hate it. It's against my God and my Savior. I don't want it in my brain. I don't want it on my body. The man in pornography says, I hate it. I don't want it in my brain. I don't want it in my body. The backbiter, who always has something to say, I don't want it in my brain. I don't want it in my body. Because I have a high priest who tells me it's sin against him, against the very holy God. I do not want it. We can no longer tell the world their sin is okay. We have to rightly, yes and graciously tell them Your sin is against God. I can put my arm around any person. But I cannot tell them 
your sin is okay, especially if I know my sin is not okay. The problem we've got is they want to say their sin is okay, so we're willing to tell them it's okay because you know why? We want our sin to be okay. Come to the table today because your sin is not okay. Walk out refreshed in the forgiveness of the Son, Jesus Christ, and leave this place and be willing to say, because my sin is not okay, they need a high priest too. So I'll tell them the truth. I'll live the truth in front of them. Don't give in. Do not give in. Young people, don't give in. You will do damage to your own souls and you will do damage to the very Christ you say you love. Don't give in. And by God's grace, this church will stand for decades on His truth and nothing else. Pray that God make us a light. Maybe it's small. Maybe it's little. But maybe it's enough light in a dark place around us that we shed the light of Christ to those around us. But do it because you have a high priest who protects his house and the people in his house. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our sins and weaknesses and faults and failures are so many we can't even number them. There are so many that some of them we don't even know them. Maybe we've forgotten them or we didn't see them for what they were when we committed them. All we can do is come before you. Not only to acknowledge our sin, but to repent of it. We pray that we come in repentance and faith in the Son, that we would then go forward and live that truth before men and women and children being willing and able to defend the faith that is within us. Give us thoughtfulness, Lord. Of who we are. In our need for Christ and who we are in Christ and because of Christ. Lord, help us please not to become self-righteous religious leaders of our day. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.